Just a brief preface before we get to the scripture reading and the sermon passage this morning. You'll see that we're covering a fairly large uh, section, a fairly large passage of scripture for the sermon passage. I debated even up to the printing of the bulletin on Friday whether or not to try to take this passage as a whole and decided to do so because I think it's best in light of the contents of chapter 13 of 2 Samuel to rip the band-aid off and get this over with. It's a difficult passage. It simply is. It's not difficult so much to understand. There are certain verses perhaps that are a little challenging for us to understand, but the content of it is difficult. There may be some of you who have suffered in some way similar to the sister of Absalom, Tamar. Perhaps not in specific identical ways, but in similar ways. Some of our our women, perhaps even some of our men, have suffered from a form of assault for which this passage may be difficult. I'm praying for you. I understand that it might be very difficult for you. I have not suffered in a similar way myself. But God's word is unflinching in how it looks at sin. Necessarily so. Because we need to understand sin in all of its ugliness. In all of its depravity. In all of its darkness. And so I understand how painful this passage may be for some. May it be the case for you if, you, if you suffer, if you struggle with a passage like this, that God's grace would be on full display. And so as we read this, understand that not only did the Lord very clearly hate the sin that Tamar suffered, but for any of you who have suffered from similar types of sin, abuse, assault, God hates that as well. And justice either will or already has been served. So let me read to you now from God's Word. We'll begin by reading our scripture reading, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 22 to 25. And then we'll go to our sermon passage, 2 Samuel 13, verses 1 to 39. Brothers and sisters, this is the very Word of God Most High. 1 Peter 2, 22-25. Speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ, Peter writes, He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Now turning to 2 Samuel chapter 13, we'll read the whole chapter, verses 1 to 39. Now Absalom, David's son, had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar. And after a time, Amnon, David's son, loved her. And Amnon was so tormented that he made himself ill because of his sister Tamar. For she was a virgin, and it seemed impossible to Amnon to do anything to her. 
But Amnon had a friend whose name was Jonadab, the son of Shemaiah, David's brother. And Jonadab was a very crafty man, and he said to him, O son of the king, why are you so haggard morning after morning? Will you not tell me? Amnon said to him, I love Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. Jonadab said to him, Lie down on your bed and pretend to be ill. And when your father comes to see you, say to him, Let my sister Tamar come and give me bread to eat, and prepare the food in my sight that I may see it and eat, eat it from her hand. So Amnon lay down and pretended to be ill. And when the king came to see him, Amnon said to the king, Please let my sister Tamar come and make a couple of cakes in my sight that I may eat from her hand. Then David sent home to Tamar, saying, Go to your brother Amnon's house and prepare food for him. So Tamar went to her brother Amnon's house where he was lying down. And she took dough and kneaded it and made cakes in his sight and baked the cakes. And she took the pan and emptied it out before him, but he refused to eat. And Amnon said, Send out everyone from me. So everyone went out from him. Then Amnon said to Tamar, Bring the food into the chamber that I may eat from your hand. And Tamar took the cakes she had made and brought them into the chamber to Amnon, her brother. But when she brought them near to eat, he took hold of her and said to her, Come, lie with me, my sister. She answered him, No, my brother, do not violate me. For such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not do this outrageous thing. As for me, where could I carry my shame? And as for you, you would be as one of the outrageous fools in Israel. Now, for, now therefore, please speak to the king. For he will not withhold me from you. But he would not listen to her. And being stronger than she, he violated her and lay with her. Then Amnon hated her with a very great hatred. So that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. And Amnon said to her, get up, go. But she said to him, no, my brother. For this wrong in sending me away is greater than the other that you did to me. But he would not listen to her. He called the young man who served him and said, Put this woman out of my presence and bolt the door after her. Now she was wearing a long robe with sleeves, for thus were the virgin daughters of the king dressed. So his servant put her out and bolted the door after her. And Tamar put ashes on her head and tore the long robe that she wore. And she laid her hand on her head and went away crying aloud as she went. And her brother Absalom said to her, Has Amnon, your brother, been with you? Now hold your peace, my sister. He is your brother. Do not take this to heart. So Tamar lived a desolate woman in her brother Absalom's house. When King David heard all of, these, of all of these things, he was very angry. But Absalom spoke to Amnon, neither good nor bad, for Absalom hated Amnon because he had violated his sister Tamar. After two full years, Absalom had sheep shearers at Belhazor, which is near Ephraim. And Absalom invited the king's sons and Absalom came to the king and said, Behold, your servant has sheep shears. Please let the king and his servants go with your servant. But the king said to Absalom, No, my son, let us not all go, lest we be burdensome to you. He pressed him, but he would not go, but gave him his blessing. Then Absalom said, If not, please let my brother Amnon go with me, go with us. And the king said to him, Why should he go with you? But Absalom pressed him until he let Amnon and all the king's sons go with him. Then Absalom commanded his servants, Mark when Amnon's heart is merry with wine, and when I say to you, strike Amnon, then kill him. Do not fear. Have I not com commanded you? Be courageous and be valiant. 
So the servants of Absalom did to Amnon as Absalom had commanded. Then all the king's sons arose and each mounted his mule and fled. While they were on their way, on the way, news came to David. Absalom has struck down all the king's sons and not one of them is left. Then the king arose and tore his garments and lay on the earth. And all his servants who were standing by tore their garments. But Jonadab, the son of Shemaiah, David's brother, said, Let not my lord suppose that they have killed all the young men, the king's sons, for Amnon alone is dead. For by the command of Absalom, this, this has been determined from the day he violated his sister Tamar. Now, therefore, let not my lord, the king, so take it to heart as to suppose that all the king's sons are dead, for Amnon alone is dead. But Absalom fled. And the young man who kept the watch lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, many people were coming from the road behind him by the side of the mountain. And Jonadab said to the king, Behold, the king's sons have come, as your servant said, so it has come about. And as soon as he had finished speaking, behold, the king's sons came and lifted up their voice and wept. And the king also and all his servants wept very bitterly. But Absalom fled and went to Talmai, the king, uh, the son of Amenahud, king of Geshur. And David mourned for his son day after day. So Absalom fled and went to Geshur and was there three years. And the spirit of the king longed to go out to Absalom because he was comforted about Amnon since he was dead. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray. Our gracious God, Heavenly Father, We may feel like not wanting this passage to be in your word. But Lord, you are a God who does not cover up the warts of your people. It's important for us to read these difficult parts of the history of King David and his children. It's important because it shows us that they are not so different than we. We tend, Lord, to hold up as heroes of the faith, David and various of his sons. And in so doing, Lord, well, certainly David was exemplary in many, many ways. In so doing, and so holding him up, we often fail to see or refuse to see the ugliness that was present in his life, but also in his family. The disarray that he brought to his family because of his sin. Lord, we pray that you would help us to be as honest when we look at our own sin as you are in showing to us the sins of your people of old. We pray, Lord, that you would teach us to hate our own sin as much as you hate it. We pray that you would cause us, Lord, to understand your word, this portion of it today. And so we pray that your spirit would teach us. We pray that he would lead us. We pray that he would cause us to worship you, even as your word is preached. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Now you probably remember it really was only about a chapter ago, and yet it seems an age ago, 
that in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 10, the prophet Nathan told David after he had confronted David with his uh, sin that David had committed against Bathsheba and against the Lord and David had confessed. The prophet Nathan said this, Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Now there was a brief period of tranquility that David and Bathsheba enjoyed after David's confession of sin, after his humbling of himself. And we have to say that this was spirit-wrought humbling that came about. And so they enjoyed a, a period of tranquility during which Solomon, David and Bathsheba's second son, was born. But following that, David's house began to experience this prophecy of Nathan in 2 Samuel 12, 10 in a deeply profound, painful way. In this chapter, David's proverbial chickens were beginning to come home to roost. And not just stemming from the events of the immediately preceding passages. It's not evident from Scripture how widely David's sins and crimes had become known in Israel, but his children had to have known about them, at least in part. They had to have been aware of at least some of the things that David had done, some of the sins and the crimes that David had committed. And because of this, there is no doubt that the children's respect for their father had been diminished. And likely this was the case more broadly within David's family, as we'll see when we consider David's nephew, Jonadab. David had brothers. David had elder brothers that who, who he had kind of shown up when he was much younger, being willing to go and fight against Goliath. And now they were all part of the royal family, the royal entourage. And so what we get, beginning in chapter 13, going through chapter 18, is a detailed picture of a fully dysfunctional family. But it is a dysfunction that which began well before the incident that's described in chapter 13. Now one thing to make note of here is that Absalom's, Absalom's murder of Amnon appears to be more of a culmination of a bitter, bitter rivalry between the two half-brothers than it is an avenging of the rape of Amnon's full sister, Tamar. Now, it, it is true that Absalom is said by Jonadab to have avenged the death, I'm sorry, the, the rape of his sister in killing, or having his brother Amnon killed. It's true that in chapter 14, Absalom will name his daughter Tamar after his sister whom he loved. And yet there seems to be a rivalry that's already present between these two half-brothers, these two sons of David. I say this because Absalom's reaction when Tamar comes home after the incident with Amnon is completely devoid of compassion. Perhaps he's trying to play the incident down. It doesn't seem like he's angered at all by what he perceives to have happened between them. He asks, has Amnon, your brother, been with you? Now hold your peace, my sister. He's your brother. Do not take this to heart. It seems as if the rape of his sister provides the pretext for Absalom do, uh, to do something he's been wanting to do for a long time. You may be aware of this, perhaps you're not. Maybe it's, you don't have the exact chronology, the, the, the lineage of David's son, but Amnon is the eldest of David's son. He is the crown prince. He is the next one in line. And though Absalom is third in line, there's no mention of the second in line son, Kiliab, who was mentioned only once in 2 Samuel chapter 3, 
when the sons of David are listed in order. He's never mentioned again in Scripture. This may mean that Kelieb had died by the time of the events in chapter 13 or was otherwise deposed in some way, which placed Absalom as second in line to Amnon. If that's the case, he would therefore benefit to his way of thinking if Amnon was taken out. And so Absalom's reaction to what has happened to his sister Tamar seems less about the heinousness of Amnon's sin and more about a rivalry between the two half-brothers. And even Tamar's father, David, though he is described as very angry in verse 21, did nothing to Amnon to bring justice to his daughter. As we work our way through the sermon today, a lengthy, painful passage, I would ask you to keep this thought in the forefront of your minds. We do not hate sin enough. But God so hated our sin, yet so loved us, that He sent His Son to suffer His hatred and pour out His love on us. Let me say that again. We do not hate sin enough. But God so hated our sin, yet so loved us, that He sent His Son to suffer His hatred and pour out His love on us. I'm indebted to Dale Davis for highlighting how God's hatred of sin is on display in this passage. I've divided the sermon into three sections. The first section, from lust to hatred. The second section, meditating on murder. And the third, mourning a lost son. Again, from lust to hatred, meditating on murder, mourning a lost son. These are the three parts of the sermon today. So let's look at the first section of the sermon, from lust to hatred. Verse 1 of chapter 13 reads now, or afterwards, as it can also be translated, Absalom, David's son, had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar. And after a time, Amnon, David's son, loved her. Now, in the words of one commentator on the first verse, uh, the one who, who supplied this alternate translation of afterwards, the word there, that opening word of verse 1, is intended to connect the events in chapter 13 to what has immediately preceded this chapter. What happened in chapter 12? And 11, David's heinous sin against Bathsheba and the Lord. The exposure of David's sin by Nathan. David's confession of that sin. Nathan's prophecy that the sword would not depart from the household of David. All of these things are in the immediate preceding context. They're, they're in the background very much of what is going to take place in chapter 13. Absalom and Tamar were the children of David's wife, Ma'akah, a wife who wasn't mentioned before she was introduced back in chapter 3, verse 3. We don't know anything about Ma'akah. Amnon was the son of David's wife, Ahinoam, who you will remember David had taken as a wife at the same time that he took Abigail, the wife of Nabal, in 1 Samuel chapter 25, verses 42 to 43. Both Abigail and Ahinoam were taken captive by the Amalekites in 1 Samuel chapter 30. And you remember David's a uh, very brave rescue of his wives and of all of the people uh, from the Amalekites. And though Absalom was the third-born son of David, he's mentioned first in verse 1, with Amnon mentioned third after Absalom's sister Tamar. 
This foreshadows the prominent role that Absalom is going to have in subsequent chapters. Verse 1, in a very nonchalant way, introduces the fact that Amnon is in love with his sister Tamar. While Amnon might have believed it was love, in truth, he was in lust with her. This is a, a confusion that many an adolescent boy has suffered from throughout time. He believed that it was love, but he could not have loved her. He did not love her because if he did, he never would have done what he did to her. He never, never would have violated her in the way that he did. Verse 2 says that he was so tormented by his lust for Tamar that he made himself ill. There's no reason to doubt that he was sincerely ill. Though later on, verse 6, verse 7 or so, he fakes an illness in order to get Tamar to make food for him. Verse 2 goes on to say that she was a virgin, and it seemed impossible to him for him to do anything to her. It's a very revealing way of putting it, isn't it? He doesn't want to show love to her. He doesn't want to, to care for her. As icky as that may seem, and it certainly is between a brother and a sister, even if they're half-siblings, he just wants to do something to her. And we learn in verse 18 that because of her status, she wore a long robe, possibly of many colors. The, the word there that describes the robe is the same as the robe that's described as uh, Joseph wearing. And she wears this type of robe along with all of the other uh, of David's unmarried daughters. And it marks their status as virgins. They're, they're marked. They wear this wherever they go. And everyone in the city of Jerusalem would know these are the king's daughters. They're not to be touched. And this implies that there would be consequences for any man who violated David's daughters. A close friend and confidant of Amnon, his cousin Jonadab, described as a crafty man in verse 4, saw that Amnon was tormented and he asked him what was wrong. And Amnon told him in verse 4 that he loved his sister Tamar. And Jonadab very quickly came up with a scheme to get Tamar in the room with Amnon. I think we need to say here that Jonadab more than likely did not realize what actually ended up happening was going to happen. But certainly, Jonadab was helping to facilitate a liaison between Amnon and Tamar, probably assuming that it would be a, a, a reciprocated liaison between the two. The scheme was for Amnon to pretend to be ill, to ask his father, David, to send Tamar to make food for him and to feed him. And David, suspecting nothing inappropriate, does as she's... Uh, sorry, uh, David, suspecting nothing inappropriate in Amnon's request, in verse 7, sent a message to, to Tamar to go to her brother Amnon's house and to do just that, to make food for her brother. And so Tamar, suspecting nothing inappropriate, does as she's requested. And verse 8 says that she took dough and she kneaded it and she made cakes in his sight and baked them. And the word that's, that's translated cakes or uh, baking these cakes, it's, it's, a, it's a special type of bread. And literally it would be translated heart bread. Which tells you something about the love that Tamar, sisterly love, I think we have to say, that Tamar is showing to her brother. It's probably a type of bread that was used to give to, to sick or in, invalid, uh, invalid people. 
When the cakes were ready, verse 9 says that she removed the pan and took the cakes out to give to him, but Amnon refused them. This is all part of the scheme. After that, he sent all of the servants out of his room, leaving Tamar alone with him. And then in verse 10, he told her to bring the food into his chamber so he could eat it from her hand. And when she got near to him, verse 11 says that he took hold of her hand and told her to come lie with him. And Tamar tells him in verses 12 to 13, No, my brother, do not violate me, for such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not do this outrageous thing. As for me, where could I carry my shame? And as for you, you would be as one of the outrageous fools in Israel. Now please speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you. Now among the commentators, there's a question here as to whether what Amnon was hoping to do with his sister was regarded as incest in that day. But I think we can lay that question to rest in just a few moments. But as soon as Amnon lay his hand on her, Tamar knew that she was in trouble. She knew that she was no match for his strength, so she tried to persuade him not to do what was in his heart to do. First, she mentioned the fact that it violated God's law. Such a thing is not done in Israel. It might be done in other nations. It's not done here. What Amnon intended to do was a violation of Scripture. Leviticus 18 verse 9 specifically prohibits incest. And then she called what he was trying to do outrageous. It was a scandalous sin that Amnon was desiring to commit with her. Then she appeals to what she hopes is his sense of compassion for her in verse 13. As for me, where could I carry my shame? In other words, if you do this to me, you will ruin my life. And then finally, she appeals to his concern that he ought to have for his own reputation. As, and as for you, you would be as one of the outrageous fools in Israel. It could also be translated as, as one of the godless fools in Israel. She also tries misdirection. Now, therefore, please speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you. Now, one hopes that she doesn't actually believe this about her father. One hopes that she doesn't really believe that David will give her to her half-brother to be his wife. But her father hasn't always been the paragon of virtue. Most likely, whether or not she believes that he would actually do it, most likely she is trying to do anything that will cause Amnon to break from his intended course of action so that she can get away. It can be an effective tactic to be used. Women have used this throughout the ages to get away from would-be attackers. Amnon, however, will not be deterred. Verse 14 says that he, being stronger than she was, violated, by, violated her by forcing himself upon her. It is the visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of, of those who hate me of Exodus 20, uh, Exodus 20 in real life. And Amnon here committed not only rape, but incest. Now we have to say very quickly, David didn't hate the Lord but Amnon certainly appears to. 
There's no record of repentance on his part, no sign of remorse. We can positively say that David's acts of great sin began a legacy that continued on in his sons. Now, it may be that David's past sins in some ways left him feeling powerless to do anything when he saw similar sins in his sons. To speak up, to condemn, might leave him open to accusations of hypocrisy. Such is the reverberating effect of sin in our lives. Fathers and mothers, we ought to be especially on our guard about sinning. Because it makes it that much more difficult to correct our children when, they, when we see them committing the same kinds of sins in their own lives. Amnon was angry that Tamar did not go along with his plan willingly. And after he had raped her, verse 15 says, Then Amnon hated her with very great hatred, so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. And Amnon said to her, Get up, go. She begs him not to put her out. He had ruined her. She would have nothing. He knew that what, she knew that what he had done would make her life even more difficult. And so she says in verse 16, No, my brother, for this wrong in sending me away is greater than the other that you did to me. But Amnon would not listen. Verse 17 says that he called his servant and told him to put her out of his presence and lock the door. The verse literally says, put this out of my presence. It's almost like he's saying, get this thing away from me. He will not refer to her as a human being. He won't use her name. He won't even use a pronoun to refer to her. He had de dehumanized her by his violation of her, and he was continuing to treat her that way. Well, that brings us to the second section of the sermon, meditating on murder. Verse 18, which we've already mentioned, says that she was wearing a long robe with sleeves, possibly of many colors, because that was the way that the virgin daughters of the king dressed. And when she had been cast out, verse 19 says that she put ashes on her head and she tore the long robe that she wore. What does this sound like? She's in mourning. Yes, she's ashamed. But she is wrecked. She is destroyed. These are the things that a person in that day and culture did when they were in mourning, and Tamar certainly is. Verse 19 continues, And she laid her hand on her head and went away crying aloud as she went. She was so distraught, she wasn't even trying to hide what had happened to her. She goes back home where her brother Absalom is, and he asks, Has Amnon, your brother, been with you? Now hold your peace, my sister. He's your brother. Do not take this to heart. Absalom would have known that Tamar, his sister, was going to Amnon's house. He probably easily would have been aware of that. And Absalom can tell by, he can just tell. There's no escaping it. He knows what has happened. He knows what Amnon has done to her. But verse 20 ends by saying, So Tamar lived, a desolate woman, in her brother Absalom's house. Now Joyce Baldwin, in her commentary on 2 Samuel, she writes... She, speaking of Tamar, she took shelter in Absalom's house, a desolate woman, isolated from society, disqualified through no fault of her own from marriage. Now, as important as marriage 
it really does continue to be important in our day, though it is, it is neglected, it is denigrated, it is derided by many. It's still an important institution in our day. But as important as it is for us, it was far more important for a woman in that day. And of course, what do kings do with their daughters? They marry them off to princes of other lands, establishing alliances, allegiances between other countries. None of this can happen for Tamar. She has no hope, no prospects. And after chapter 13 of 2 Samuel, she will never be mentioned by name again in Scripture. Only being referenced when we get the name of Absalom's daughter, whom he names after her. Verse 22 says, But Absalom spoke to Amnon neither good nor bad, for Absalom hated Amnon because he had violated his sister Tamar. Absalom refused to have anything further to do with his half-brother Amnon. He would not speak to him. He would not sit with him. He would not do anything with him. Though many other male creatures have multiple mates throughout their lifetimes, the norm for all of human history is for one man to be the husband of one wife and for one woman to be the wife of one husband. Of course, there are exceptions. We understand that. If the spouse of uh, one spouse is deceased, the other uh, spouse who lives is free to remarry. There are specific instances given in Scripture, specific circumstances for why biblical divorce frees the innocent party to be able to marry again. But the norm is one man with one wife, one wife with one man. There are some outliers, of course, but this is the norm for good reason, and we're seeing that in our passage today. A non-Christian evolutionary biologist writes this, Considering all human societies for which we have reliable records, a monogamous partnership is the typical form of, of mating arrangement. The best way for humans to maximize the survival of their offspring is for both parents to stay home, that is, to work as a team, as opposed to the man always searching for his next mate. If by God's common grace an evolutionary biologist can deduce this, then David certainly should have known better. He had God's law. He knew that the marrying, his marrying multiple wives, was specifically prohibited by Scripture. And so if he had obeyed God's command by not taking many wives for himself, this never would have happened. It never would have happened. But now, Absalom hates Amnon just as much as Amnon hated Tamar. And verse 23 says, After two full years of Absalom, after two full years, Absalom had sheep shears at Baal Hazar, which is near Ephraim. And Absalom invited all the king's sons. For two years, Absalom had been plotting the murder of his half brother Amnon. His plan is beginning to come to fruition. After two years, he went to the king, he asked, his father David, if he and his servants would go with him to shear the sheep, but David declined in verse 25, even though Absalom pressed him to go. Having gotten the answer that he was hoping for, Absalom asked David in verse 26, if not, please let my brother Amnon go with us. And David asked 
Absalom why Amnon should go with him. Absalom likely knew that his father wouldn't go. He likely knew that his father at this stage in his life, at this stage as king, he's not going to trifle with the shearing of sheep. But perhaps he thought that by asking him to come along, it would arouse less suspicion when he asked that Amnon be allowed to go with him. And David did eventually let Amnon and all of the other king's sons go with him. And then verse 28 gets right to the business at hand. Then Absalom commanded his servants, Mark when Amnon's heart is merry with wine, and when I say to you, strike Amnon, then kill him. Do not fear. Have I not commanded you? Be courageous and be valiant. It's like he's commanding his troops before they're about to go into battle. He's commending them to them this valiant effort. Notice that there is no actual description of Amnon's murder. Verse 25, 29 rather, simply says, So the servants of Absalom did to Amnon as Absalom had commanded. And then all the king's sons arose and each mounted his mule and fled. They might have thought that Absalom was going to carry out a mass uh, killing. For two years Absalom had conceived, meditated upon, and looked forward to this moment. He could avenge his sister's rape. He was able to remove the one person between himself and the throne in the same stroke. And while we have to say that David was angry, Scripture says David was angry over what Amnon had done to his daughter, he did nothing to bring justice, though he was the highest court in the land. And rather than seeking God's grace... Absalom allowed bitterness and malice to fester and grow, which culminated in murder. But this is what happens in a society when lawlessness is the norm. And that's what David was allowing, if not in a widespread way in his kingdom, certainly within his own house. And that brings us to the final point of the sermon this morning, mourning a lost son. Verse 30 says, while they were on the way, news came to David. Absalom has struck down all the king's sons and not one of them is left. And David immediately, hearing this news, rose. He tore his garments. He went into mourning on the spot. And all of his servants did the same. But Jonadab, his nephew and Amnon's former former counselor in matters relating to Tamar, said to him, beginning in verse 32, Let not my lord suppose that they have killed all the young men, the king's sons, for Amnon alone is dead. For by the command of Absalom, this has been determined from the day he violated his sister Tamar. Now therefore, let not my lord the king so take it to heart as to suppose that all the king's sons are dead, for Amnon alone is dead. Jonadab had been not Absalom's counselor, but Amnon's. He'd been involved in this scheme to get Tamar uh, Tamar into his home. It is doubtful that he was a knowing, willing accomplice to her rape. And it is even more doubtful that he had any knowledge of or hand in what Absalom had just done. Rather, he knows very well what a man in Absalom's position is capable of doing. But also, he knows that Absalom wouldn't take the lives of all of his brothers for what Amnon did to his sister. These other brothers are younger. They're not a threat to Absalom's goal of becoming king. 
Verse 34 says that Absalom fled after the murder of his brother. Verse 37 says that he went to Talmai, the son of Amahud, the king of Geshur, who was his grandfather on his mother's side. And verse 38 says that he stayed there in exile for three years. Absalom fled to the north, to Geshur. It's a, a region between Israel and Syria. While the the king's other sons and their entourage headed south back to Jerusalem. And verse 34 says that the watchman in Jerusalem looked up and he saw many people coming from the road by the side of the mountain. In verse 35, Jonadab confirms what he had said earlier to the king. And then the king's sons came in and they all wept with one voice over the death of Amnon. The end of verse 37 says that David mourned for his son day after day. But the text is ambiguous regarding whom it is that David is mourning for. He's probably mourning the loss of both of his sons, Amnon and Absalom. During this time since Amnon's death, uh, sorry, verse 39 says that the spirit of the king longed to go out to Absalom because he was comforted about Amnon since he was dead. Uh, During this time since Amnon's, Amnon's death and Absalom's exile, David has had the opportunity to grieve the loss of Amnon. But Absalom is still living, though he's completely estranged from David. And any parent of estranged children can tell you how difficult it is. The situation as it lay before David was intractable. How can he possibly bring about reconciliation between himself and his, uh, his sons and Absalom? David feels powerless. And he has to face the fact that this is largely due to his own shortcomings, sins, inaction. The fact is, brothers and sisters, that David did not hate his own sins or the sins of his sons deeply enough. He did not love righteousness or hate wickedness in the way that God's king of his people of Israel should. His justice upon Amnon should have been swift But he was overly indulgent, as he most likely had been throughout his son's lives. God, on the other hand, is not indulgent with sin. He is patient with his children, but he does not indulge us in our sin. God hates sin. And he paid a heavy price in order to atone for our sin. And of his only begotten son, he has said, You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. The son hates sin just as much as his father does. And he went to the cross to receive our sin's punishment. And he did so, as 1 Peter 2.24 says, bearing our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. God does not just turn a blind eye to your or my sin. He doesn't simply sweep it under the rug. That's how we so often deal with our sin and other people's sin, but not God. Now, we might not have sinned in the same heinous ways as David and Amnon and Absalom. But the least sin we commit is equally deserving of God's eternal punishment in hell, because every sin is an affront to God who is holy The iniquity of the fathers is so often handed down from generation to generation. So often you see your own sins show up in the behavior of your children. But in the Godhead, 
The Son is an equal partaker of righteousness with the Father. He and the Father, along with the Spirit, have one will and are equal in power and glory. The Son did not go to the cross against His will, subordinating Himself to the will of the Father. The Son, the Spirit, and the Father are so equal in will that the will for the Son to go to the cross originated with all three persons. The Son, the Spirit, the Father are so equal that they, they all three hate sin and love righteousness in equal measure. And in order to fulfill God's will to save a people for himself, it was necessary for the Son to be made man and to die in the place of people for their sins. Now, if you believe in Jesus Christ, then the penalty for your sins has been borne by Jesus on the cross. Justice has already been served. You will not suffer punishment on an eternal scale for your sins. But if you do not believe in Jesus Christ, then consider the awful toll that sin takes on people, on families, but also on Jesus himself. And then realize that for you, the true punishment for your sins is yet to come. It has not been borne by another. If you don't believe then you will suffer the the pains and the penalty of your sin in hell forever. What can you do to save yourself from God's fiery wrath? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. Repent and believe. Trust not in your works. Trust not in your righteousness. Trust not in the goodness that you have done throughout your life. Trust only in Christ Jesus, the eternal Son of God who came in the flesh, who took on the sins of his people, who willingly went to the cross and died in your and my place. That, brothers and sisters is the good news. That's the gospel. Amen. Our gracious God, we thank you that though you so hated sin, still you sent the eternally begotten Son to take our place, to take on our sin, and to die because of it, to suffer the Father's wrath. We thank you, Lord, for your great hatred of sin. And we thank you for the great outpouring of love. You've poured it out upon your children's heads. We thank you that if a sinner such as David can have eternal life with you, then so can we. We are grateful that even as he was a man after your own heart, that so are we. Lord, we pray for those who have suffered great harm in this life. We pray for those who have suffered assault and attack. We pray that you would bring healing for them. 
We pray, dear Lord, that they would be free from any guilt or from any responsibility or from any oppression that they still carry with them. We pray for those who have committed egregious sins and assaulted others. We pray for their souls. We pray for their salvation. We pray, dear Lord, that you would bring them to a true and saving faith in Christ Jesus. That you'd make them truly repentant for their heinous sins. We pray that you would have mercy upon all all of us, O Lord, because all of us are sinners and justly deserving of your wrath. We thank you that Jesus Christ, the Son of David, but the Son who was greater than David, that he did all things perfectly. And that in the cross, both your justice, but also your great mercy and grace are on full display. And we pray this all in Christ's holy name.